This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the seventh episode of season nine. Before we get into it, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Two facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know the bloodlines of all modern racehorses go back to the Dali Arabian, the Godolphin Arabian and the Bayerli Turk? These Arabian horses were imported into Britain in the late 17th and early 18th century by wealthy men intent on breeding faster, stronger and more athletic horses. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. Horse racing is animated roulette. Roger Kahn said that, an American author, I'll be honest, I haven't heard of. This case was suggested via email by Sarah Yates. We're in the Berkshire town of Ascot this week. And the reason I chose a horse racing themed fact and quote is because our main location is Ascot Racecourse. Here's five quickfire facts about Ascot Racecourse. Number one, founded in 1711 by Queen Anne, Ascot Racecourse is enriched in royal heritage which has helped shape it into one of the world's leading track racecourses. The annual Royal Ascot meeting welcomes around 300,000 racegoers across five days. Number two, Greencoat Stewards, or Yeoman Prickers as they are traditionally known, have formed the ceremonial guard for the monarch at Ascot since 1744. Their role was developed in the early 19th century to include crowd control by using their prickers to move racegoers off the course. Not sure what prickers are, but I love the sound of it. Number three, until 1783, jockeys were permitted to wear whatever they liked when racing, but it caused a great deal of confusion when attempting to pin down the winners of each race. Jockeys are now instructed to wear the colours of their horse's owners. Number four, the beginnings of a dress code can be traced back to the early 19th century, when Beau Brummel, a close friend of the Prince Regent, decreed that men of elegance should wear wasted black coats and white cravats with pantaloons. And number five, what is now known as Royal Ascot started to take shape with the Gold Cup in 1807, Ascot's oldest surviving race. The winning owners still receive a gold trophy which becomes their property. As of 2020, the estimated population of Ascot was 18,390. Our story begins at the Royal Ascot meeting, one of the most prestigious events in British horse racing. The excitement and anticipation were high as attendees gathered for the first day of races on Tuesday, June 18th, 2002. The opener at 2.30pm was the Queen Anne Stakes, a mile-long race that saw Johnny Murtagh ride his four-year-old thoroughbred no excuse needed to victory in an impressive display. It was a momentous win that set the tone for what promised to be an unforgettable week at Royal Ascot. However, little did anyone know that the prestigious race course would soon be marred by tragedy. Unbeknownst to those in attendance, two security guards at the event named Peter Taylor and Nigel Oger would later hatch a sinister plan that would result in the brutal murder of Patrick Welsh just nine months later. Nigel, I'm saying Oger is how you pronounce it, I think that's right, O-G-I-E-R, we'll go with Oger, 
Nigel was 27 years old when he met Patrick while working security at the racecourse. The exact nature of their work is not specified, but it can be assumed they were both employed as some kind of security personnel. Patrick would have been around 36 years old when they met. Nigel grew up on Guernsey, the second largest island in the Channel Islands. He later moved to mainland UK with his family during his teenage years and settled in Surrey. Patrick was born and raised in mainland UK, specifically in Windsor, a town located seven miles northeast of Ascot for reference. Despite coming from different parts of the UK and having varying backgrounds growing up, Nigel and Patrick immediately hit it off upon meeting each other. They quickly became close friends outside their working hours, often enjoying each other's company over a few swift pints at a local pub once or twice a week. Their initial friendship makes what eventually happened between them all the more tragic and senseless. It highlights how events can unfold unexpectedly and quickly turn tragic, even when those involved are closest to us. While there is little known about Patrick's personal life or background, he was reportedly a devoted supporter of England's football team. On the other hand, Nigel Oger has been described as a volatile individual by those who knew him well. According to sources close to him, Nigel had a tendency to switch between two extreme personalities without warning, either being incredibly kind and friendly or exhibiting aggressive and unpredictable behaviour. It was that erratic behaviour that made it difficult for people to predict how he would react in certain situations and could lead to trouble if he was provoked in any way. Therefore, it seems that both men had rather different personalities. That's the impression I got whilst researching the case anyway. Peter Taylor, a 43-year-old man who was also a security worker at Ascot Racecourse, he's the third person I need to introduce in this story, he played a significant role in the events leading up to the murder of Patrick. Peter had a reputation for being something of a tough guy who was not to be fucked with. His short fuse and propensity for lashing out at anyone he perceived as having wronged him made him someone you didn't want to cross. Like Patrick, Peter lived in Windsor and was known to have an acrimonious relationship with him. One source claimed that Patrick had even once been a tenant of Peter's until their falling out rendered their living arrangement untenable. While it remains unclear how much influence Peter exerted over Nigel in the lead-up to the deadly altercation involving Patrick, his presence is crucial in understanding the disputes that eventually ended in that murder. Peter and Sue Taylor were a married couple whose relationship began to break down. The exact reasons for this are not entirely clear, but there was talk within the community suggesting an affair between Sue and Patrick. That rumour resulted in Peter kicking Patrick out of his house, which ultimately caused significant frustration and anger to build up within him. The timeline surrounding the alleged affair is unclear, but it's known that tensions between Patrick and Peter continued to escalate for several months leading up to March 2003, that's the month in which our main timeline occurred. It's important to note that while there's been speculation regarding an affair taking place between Sue and Patrick, it's never been definitively proven or disproven. In September 2002, Patrick found himself in trouble with the police after crashing a car that wasn't even his. It was Nigel's. The luxury Grand Tourer was a Jaguar XJS, which had been manufactured between 1975 and 1996. As with a lot of this story, the exact details of the crash are not known, but it's assumed that Patrick was probably driving too fast and lost control of the vehicle. When his car was later searched by police officers, they discovered around 400 ecstasy tablets stashed in the glove box. 
The number of pills found was significantly higher than what an individual would normally carry for personal use, indicating that Patrick's intention may have been to sell them or to transport them to someone who would then distribute them further. As a result of his drug charges, Patrick had to report to his local police station every Tuesday night from 8 to 9pm as part of his bail conditions. One assumes he had to do that so the police could keep track of his movements and whereabouts. It's worth remembering that he had to do that every Tuesday as well. It will come up later in the episode. The first major incident that began turning the cogs leading up to Patrick's murder occurred in December 2002. It all started with a heated argument between Patrick and Peter over a bottle of vodka. The altercation quickly escalated and culminated in Peter pulling out a Gurkha-style knife called a Kukri and using it to stab Patrick in the leg. One of the recurring themes throughout this episode is Peter's belief that Patrick has stolen something from him. This notion fueled his anger and aggression towards Patrick. We've got him stealing his wife, we've got him stealing his vodka potentially. Christ knows what that argument was about. It is a common theme and the third thing that they had an issue with is ultimately what led to his murder, but we'll get there soon. In each of those occasions, it's not exactly clear what may have prompted Peter's suspicion or whether there was any basis for it. Regardless, the underlying tension between the two appears to have been simmering for some time before that initial stabbing occurred. On January 15th, 2003, Peter experienced a significant loss when his beloved Harley-Davidson motorbike was stolen. You can probably guess where this is going. Along with the Harley, which was Peter's pride and joy according to his friends, his Kawasaki motorcycle was also taken from his home. Peter immediately suspected that his ex-lodger had burgled his house and stolen both of his cherished choppers. An absolutely fuming Peter reported the theft, along with his suspicions of who the offender was, to PC David Council. During their conversation, Taylor made a threatening statement indicating that he would retaliate against the person responsible for stealing his vehicles by enlisting the help of notorious motorcycle gang members. Peter said, I will fucking sort him out. I'll get the Hells Angels to sort him out and catch who did it. To make matters worse, a samurai sword had also been taken from Peter's house during the burglary. The theft of all three items only helped to further fuel that pre-existing inferno of hatred that he held towards Patrick. On March 7th, Patrick was making his way home to Windsor from his girlfriend's house in Maidenhead. He was wearing a Red England football shirt, black Armani jeans and white Reebok trainers when he left his girlfriend's house. Unfortunately, that would be the last time anyone other than his killers saw him alive. Peter and Nigel hatched a plan to lure Patrick to ask at Racecourse under the pretext of stealing champagne and wines from the kitchens, which they'd previously done. After discovering that the alarm system in the wine cellar didn't work, the trio had completed many successful robberies of alcohol over the previous months. Patrick received a text from Nigel explaining that a large theft of wines had been planned for that weekend and he wanted him to get involved. A subsequent phone call from Nigel further explained the plan, and to be fair, the situation would have seemed normal to Patrick, as it wasn't unusual for them to engage in petty crimes together during their shifts as security guards. The events leading up to the murder were marked by a heated argument that began almost as soon as Patrick arrived at the race course. As tensions escalated, he was taken by surprise when a stun gun was unexpectedly used on him. Peter and Nigel then proceeded to viciously attack Patrick by kicking him with their steel toe-cap boots and stabbing him repeatedly with a six-inch long knife. The attack, which included Patrick being hit multiple times with a heavy maglite flashlight, 
was so brutal that his teeth were reportedly knocked out during the assault. At one point, Patrick insisted to Peter that it was in fact Nigel who had stolen his beloved motorbikes, which no doubt only intensified the pummeling he received, especially from Nigel. Patrick was stabbed a total of 26 times with the knife, suffering catastrophic injuries to his neck, chest, abdomen and wrist. He also suffered injuries including fractures to his skull and facial bones, along with broken ribs and arms, which undoubtedly contributed to his eventual death at the hands of his attackers. Following his death, a post-mortem was later conducted, the results of which confirmed that his cause of death was due to a combination of stab wounds and fractures to his skull and ribs. After murdering Patrick, Peter and Nigel tied plastic bags around his head, bound his wrists and ankles with cord and wrapped his lifeless body in plastic bags before bundling it into a wheelie bin. Their intention was to bury Patrick's body, with the chosen location being a nearby wooded copse situated near a steep bank adjacent to Car Park 3 at Ascot Racecourse. The burial site was well hidden enough to prevent Patrick's body from being found right away, despite the number of visitors the racecourse regularly welcomed. With Patrick's body successfully buried, the two killers changed their blood-soaked clothes before visiting a Pizza Hut restaurant in Bracknell, a town located four miles west of the racecourse. It's frightening to think about how calm they must have appeared during the outing while knowing what atrocities they'd just committed. In the days and weeks after the murder, Peter and Nigel showed no remorse and even resorted to boasting about the killing to their friends. According to witnesses, Peter laughed as he recounted how he had killed Patrick. Leanne Jackson, a close friend of Peter's for 10 years, who'd previously thought of him as a bit of a softer, was so sickened by what she heard that she threw up on one occasion when they spoke about it. Leanne, who was staying with Peter in a flat at the time, recalled how Nigel showed her the knife used to cut Patrick's throat and confessed his part in the killing over a few quiet drinks at a pub. Her initial reaction was disbelief when she heard the news. She took it as a joke, as I think we all would realistically. However, as more details emerged, her shock turned into an overwhelming sense of grief and sadness. She would soon realise that what had happened wasn't a sick joke. It was real. Peter and Nigel had murdered Patrick Welsh. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. On Tuesday, March 11th, just four days after his brutal murder, the police became concerned when Patrick failed to report to them in line with his bail conditions. That raised red flags for investigators who began looking into his whereabouts more closely. The grim truth would not come to light until two months later though, when dog walker Anthony Naseby made a horrific discovery. Anthony spotted a decomposing leg sticking out of the ground whilst walking his dog near the wooded copse. At first, he didn't realise it was human remains and returned home without reporting it to anyone. After discussing his grisly find with his work colleagues, they decided to have a look themselves. It was at that point the colleagues realised that Antony had stumbled across human remains. The police were immediately informed. Patrick's body was removed from the shallow grave and his identity was confirmed due to the distinctive tattoos on his body. When reports that a body had been found started circulating in the press, Leanne and some of Peter and Nigel's other friends soon realised that the graphic stories they'd been told were not just sick jokes. The reported details matched what the killers had told them, which prompted them to inform the police of their admissions. On the morning of May 27th, Peter received a phone call from Martin Jones, the best man at his wedding. 
Initially calling to discuss a job opportunity at the Berkshire Polo Club, Martin was taken aback when the self-styled hard man began to cry and revealed that he had witnessed Nigel murder Patrick. Martin advised him to stop talking, as he'd already said more than he wanted to hear. The last thing he wanted was to become an accessory to murder in some capacity. Martin's account of that phone call is as follows. He said, I saw what happened. I know who did it. I need help. I advised him to stop talking. He'd already told me more information than I needed to know. The two men then met in a field at the polo club where Peter continued to tell the story of Patrick's murder in more detail. I guess Martin's request to hear no more fell on deaf ears, unless he simply didn't want to hear it over the phone, maybe for fear of being recorded and having it used against him. Peter expressed fear about speaking to the police as he believed it would put his life in danger if he did. Martin strongly encouraged him to do so anyway and accompanied him to Maidenhead Police Station later that day where they reported what they knew. Despite insisting he'd only been present during the murder and had not taken any part in it, Peter was arrested on suspicion of murder and booked into custody shortly after arriving. Nigel was arrested just over half an hour later and taken to the same police station. Peter had clearly informed the officers that Nigel was responsible for the killing. Upon arrival at the station, Nigel expressed confusion about who he was supposed to have murdered and asked for clarification from the officers. Who the fuck am I supposed to have murdered? he said, seemingly bewildered. Due to the lack of information given to Graham Tolps, Nigel's solicitor, by the authorities, he was advised to remain silent and reply with no comment answers during questioning, something which lasted a total of three days. Throughout the intensive questioning, Nigel remained steadfast in his refusal to provide any further information or incriminating statements regarding his involvement in Patrick's death. It remains unclear what role each man played in the murder, as both would go on to blame each other, but one thing's for sure, they were equally responsible for Patrick's tragic death. Regarding the no-comment advice, Graham Tolft said, The reason I advised him to go no-comment was that there was not sufficient disclosure. I was aware they knew each other, but I didn't think I was being given the full picture because the information was rather sketchy. After a thorough few days of questioning, both Peter and Nigel were formally charged with the murder of Patrick on May 30th. The case would eventually go to trial in early 2004. Leanne Jackson, a key witness, was visibly emotional as she took to the stand at Reading Crown Court. Her distress when recalling what the two defendants had told her reached a breaking point when she broke down in tears and fled from the witness box. A last-ditch effort at saving Nigel was made by his solicitor, Daniel Janner, who insisted Nigel had been framed for Patrick's murder by Peter and his brother John. Daniel said in court, His case is very straightforward. He was there on the night work in the night shift. He did not see Mr. Welsh or Mr. Taylor. He expected to see Mr. Taylor, but he never turned up, so we say that he had been framed by Peter and John Taylor. He had been used by Peter to shift the blame, a decoy for his murder of Patrick Welsh. Despite both men pleading not guilty to murder and attempting to place the blame on the other, the jury, which was composed of six men and six women, took just under 13 hours of deliberation to reach a unanimous verdict which found Peter Taylor guilty of Patrick's murder. While it took slightly longer for the jury to reach their decision regarding Nigel's involvement, they returned a majority verdict which found him also guilty of murder just an hour later. Judge Stephen Kramer handed both men life sentences on February 13, 2004, with minimum sentences of 20 years each. In his closing statement, Judge Kramer said, 
This is an offence you committed jointly, each carrying out a part in Patrick Welsh's death at Ascot Racecourse under the cover of darkness on the evening of March 7th last year. You attacked him in what the pathologist has described as a ferocious attack using feet and weapons. And that was the story of British murderers Nigel Oger and Peter Taylor. Thanks again, Sarah Yates, for suggesting that case. I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on it. A bit shorter than usual this episode, but sometimes it's just how the cookie crumbles. There's only a limited amount of resources sometimes. If you're listening on Spotify, by the way, there's a section at the bottom of the episode where you can let me know what you thought about this case. I've got four new reviews to read out this week. Gillian Hilton left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled My Go-To Podcast on Tuesdays. It reads... Hey Stuart, I really enjoy your podcast. I listen on Spotify and just let the episodes flow while I'm doing my cleaning on Tuesdays. I like that they are not hours long like some others. I like that I know some of the places that you are talking about. I found you by accident and I'm glad I did. Alana Donaldson left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Absolutely Love Your Podcast. It reads, I often go out walking and find myself getting to my target step counter very easily listening to this podcast excellent crime storyteller emma 15b left a five star review on apple podcast titled brilliant just brilliant it reads love your podcast and listen every night to send me asleep only problem is that i get so addicted to your show that i end up not sleeping and spending several hours listening to them i'm very tired taking a day off work to recover and listen to more i'm interested in cold cases that have an ending so if you have any time do more of that please currently listening to Lucy Letby Trial also. And finally, Amanda Martin left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Love It. It reads, Been in hospital for 10 days and this podcast kept me going. Thank you, Stu. You have such a calm way of telling the most horrific stories. Thank you, Gillian, Alana, Emma and Amanda. Amanda, hope you're doing better and hopefully out of hospital, fingers crossed. Thanks for leaving the show such lovely reviews. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode. You can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave your star ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, you can find the links for each on BritishMurders.com. Please continue emailing case suggestions to BritishMurdersPodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll also get a cheeky shout-out. That's it for another episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.